Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you here. There is a um, interesting rally that's going on uh, this afternoon. Actually, before I go into the rally, the topic for this afternoon is persecution and prayer. Persecution and prayer. And I'm curious, did anybody uh, walk or drive by the State Library this afternoon? All right, so there's a rally um, that's taking place right now, and it's a persecution rally, uh, oddly enough. I found, ab- I found out about this this morning, um, at Rockbank because, uh, one of the, one of the, uh, church members there, uh, was trying to get support for this persecution rally. And basically this rally is, um, organized to support those Christians who are in Arabic countries who are being persecuted. And it's organized by a young lady named Esther. And basically, she's uh, she's an Iranian young lady um, who came to Australia on a on a student visa, and she studied a master's of IT. And she shares her story um, about um, why she's organizing this this rally. And I haven't been there, but I just did some reading online. And basically, uh, she was born and raised in Iran, and. Um, for those of you who are not familiar, in Iran, it's uh, it's a country that's governed by uh, the Islamic religion, basically. And what takes place is you've got a lot of different um, pressures that are placed upon the society. Uh, for example, there's a secret police there. And basically, uh, back in the 70s when hairdos were kind of um, popular... Um, you know, guys started doing their hair differently and the secret police would basically approach these men who had short spiky hair and they were kind of like, you need to go home and, and change your hairstyle. And if you don't, we're going to take you to prison basically. And so you grow, uh, these people grew up in a society where there's like secret police like all around, like basically policing like things that we would consider to be minor issues. Um, so anyway, here's Esther. She grows up in um, in the country of Iran, and uh, she shares about three instances where she really felt deep persecution. The first one was the night of her wedding. Um, she had her wedding dress on, and um, in that culture, in that religion, uh, every part of your body needs to be covered, like every part of your body. And apparently, uh, there was a part of her wedding dress that was revealing a little bit. I think it may have been um, her sleeve uh, was like a three-quarter length sleeve as opposed to like a full length sleeve. And her father, who is a very devout um, uh, Muslim, came to her and said, your dress is immodest. You need to go change your you need to get a different dress. And can you imagine on your wedding, this is the night of your wedding. Um, anyway, she just found that to be very, uh, very disappointing. So that's the first instance. The second instance is, um, Esther, there's like a small, um, family party, a dinner party, and she goes to this family dinner party and, um, Basically, uh, she had done her hair a little bit differently, and she noticed that she had, uh, there was a manager from her workplace that had come to the party, and apparently he knew uh, one of her relatives. And so that night, um, it's a social environment, and they have uh, some kind of uh, festive dancing. And so uh, she calls her manager over, and they and they dance together. And at that party, there was there was wine, and she drank some wine. And uh, women are not allowed to drink wine in uh, in those. Well, like, women are not allowed to drink wine. And 
and so um, she got fired from her job, and she could, she to this day she's not sure exactly how uh, her workplace found out. And when she went to work uh, the next day, like everybody had already known what what had happened, and she basically got fired, and then she was ostracized from her from her community, and she kind of felt very uh, traumatized from that. And then in her everyday living, you know, word got around, and basically she could not go out in public um, and live a normal life, and so she felt. It's a good time to go do some additional studies. I want to go to Australia. She talked to her husband, and they came to Australia. And it's here that she learned about the gospel and became a Christian. And uh, as she learned about the gospel, she found it to be incredibly freeing. Um, and it was quite different from what she was normally used to in Iran. And, um, you know, she found herself praying in her normal language, which is Farsi. And she thought, you know, in my home country, I have to pray in Arabic. And if I don't pray in Arabic, then... You can't, I can't pray. And so uh, she's here in Australia. She's finishing up her studies. She's learning about the gospel. And she decides, I'm so excited about this. I need to tell my family. And so she picks up the phone and she tells her family, Mom, Dad, I met Jesus while I was here in Australia. And it's become this massive ordeal where she's kind of like, my visa is up and I have to go back to Iran and I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen. And so um, at the State Library right now, there's a large group of people that are kind of trying to raise awareness for uh, different persecution that's happening around the world. And um, I just thought it was so interesting that, um, yeah, sometimes, um, yeah, we live in these, uh, we live in Western societies where, like, the freedom of religion is is almost encouraged. And uh, anyway, it's it's quite incredible that these things are happening. And um we're going to walk through the Bible this afternoon and talk about how uh, persecution affected uh, the New Testament church. And um, yeah, just um, it, it was such an interesting story. But um, by way of reviewing and bringing context to the persecution, um, Jinha and I have been sharing about uh, a series um, just walking through church history from the New Testament onward through the book of Acts. And so far we've talked about the beginnings of the Christian church. Uh, we've talked about how revival took place and uh, how there was growth in the church. And uh, there are a few texts here, you don't have to look them up. Um, but basically in Acts chapter 2, uh, we read that uh, 3,000 people heard the gospel and uh, decided to join the church. There's massive growth. And then in Acts chapter 4, uh, that number increases. It says that there were 5,000 people that believed. Peter goes into the temple. He preaches a sermon, and there's massive growth once again. And then in chapter 5, it says that um, more people are added to the church, and uh, it says multitudes of both men and women. And it's kind of interesting because in that society, there is... Uh, significant gender inequality between male and female. And so when you see men and women worshiping together, that's very, very significant in the Bible. Um, even in the sanctuary, the worship place of the Jews, there's a separate worship place between men and women. And what you see in the book of Acts is that that wall beginning to break down and men and women um, worshiping together. In Acts chapter 6, it says uh, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied. So it's not just God adding to the church daily, but there is this multiplication process that's that's taking place. Um, and it says that uh, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith as well. Now, um, that's very significant because for the priests that are Jewish, their whole livelihood revolves around their kind of worship. And if you add Jesus into the mix, that kind of takes away the need for 
priests to sacrifice or go through certain rituals because it's just it isn't needed anymore and yet these people they study the scriptures and they come to believe that jesus is the christ and so there's massive amounts of growth that takes place Jin Ha last week talked about the importance of church organization and uh, now that they had all these people believing there needed to be a structure put in place so that god's work could go forth in an efficient organized manner and this is what takes place now after all of this uh, growth, what naturally happens is this wave of persecution. And this afternoon, I want to talk about two different waves of persecution. Uh, the first wave of persecution came from the Jews that, um, that believed in God and in the scriptures. The second wave of persecution came from um, the civil authorities from the Roman Empire. And with both waves of persecution, the motivation behind that is the teaching of Jesus would threaten the very foundation by which Judaism rests. It would also threaten the foundation um, of, of the Roman Empire. And not in the sense of it was outrightly against Judaism and the Roman Empire, but just that people would have to make changes to their lives. And this threatened the leadership. And so we're going to see how persecution takes place. I want to first walk through... Um, how persecution takes place in history from the Romans, and I'll walk backwards as to how um, the Jews persecuted the um, the Christians. Now, there's an emperor by the name of Nero, and he um, ascended to the throne in AD 54. And what takes place is that uh, Nero is this... Um, when he first starts as empire, emperor, he has these laws that are kind of catered to those that are kind of dispossessed, like the poor people of society. And he really wants to uplift, um, he wants to make Rome a better city, uh, a better empire. And so generally people accept his laws and they're quite happy with how he rules. Um, but then later on what you see is Nero is kind of quite complacent with people being happy with himself. Uh, being happy with him, and he surrounds himself in his court with people that are just going to do what he says. And it turns from becoming this uh, empire that's catering to everybody to an empire that caters to his own personal needs. And within 10 years, basically all of the people of Rome hate Nero. Um, the uh, artists hate Nero, the poets hate Nero, the actors hate Nero, and basically you see a lot of literature that's basically anti-Nero. It's the equivalent of, um, I don't know how familiar with American media you are, but um, generally um, American entertainers uh, lean towards the left. And so if you've got a conservative leader, they make fun of him a lot. And so in America, there were a few people that became really famous when George Bush uh, junior became president because he did all sorts of interesting things. And so, uh, there are people, there, there are comedians that became really, really famous because George Bush gave them a lot of content to make fun of him about. And so anyway, um, you see that hemp happening in the empire of Rome. Um, so here's Nero, very selfish. His, uh, the people in his court kind of wonder if he's, um, psychotic and they think he's crazy. And what happens is Nero has this idea. I want to rebuild the city of Rome, the actual city of Rome. There were 14 sections to the city. He wanted to make adjustments, and he thought, oh, it would just be wonderful if we could make Rome even more grand than it actually is. And his leadership listens to him, and they basically say, that's a horrible idea. Like, we we should not rebuild the whole city of Rome. And what he does is... Um, 
rumors have it that he hired people to actually set the city on fire. And out of the 14 sections of the whole city, um, 10 of the, 10 of those sections are completely destroyed. And so for six days, uh, there's fire going throughout the city. And after that six days, uh, there are three extra days of fires that spontaneously come up in different places. Um, I don't know if you were here during the bushfires. Uh, there were some massive bushfires here in Melbourne not too long ago. I think it was the greatest nat- natural disaster that's hit Australia, I believe. And so you can kind of imagine what it was like in the city of Rome. And so um, basically, out of the four remaining sections that were not destroyed, two of the four sections were predominantly occupied by Jews and Christians. And so Nero thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to pass the blame off on them. And what he basically communicates is, listen, back when Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of Rome, he crucified the leader of the Christian religion, Jesus. And so what they're doing is they're getting back at us by destroying the city of Rome. And a lot of people actually believed Nero, and basically the persecution of the Christian church begins. Now, the persecution happens for a number of reasons. One, because of Nero. Uh, another reason is because um, in a lot of, in actually every single one of the social events that the Roman Empire put on, it was closely mixed in with paganism. And so any kind of play uh, had uh, practices that the Christians would look at and know this is not right for me to be here. And so what happens in time is the Christians begin to take a step back from the social events of the city of Rome, and that separation between Christian and Roman citizen becomes greater and greater and greater, and then there begin to be this skepticism between the Romans and the Christians. And the Romans kind of felt like, these people don't hang out with us, they don't want to spend time with us, they don't attend our festivities, they don't go to our temples, they don't go to our sporting events, uh, they don't go to our plays, they must hate humanity. And there was this antagonism that took place between the Romans and the, and the Christians. On top of that, when they learned about the actual Christian God and found out that he was invisible, um, they claimed that the Christians were atheists, and that's kind of a that's kind of an interesting um, claim. And so you have all this pent up frustration over years and years and years of separation between these two people groups, and uh, what eventually takes place is this widespread persecution. And Nero is well known for grabbing the Christians throwing them into the arenas, and having the Christians mauled by animals. Um, he's also known for taking uh, Christians and burning them alive. And what he would do is, um, rather than just having a stake and like the, t- the normal town, um, um, I guess, martyring festival, I don't know what to call it, what he would do is he would have these individual poles where he would have Christians on these poles set on fire to light up the streets of Rome at night. And so as you're walking through the streets of Rome, you're like, oh, it's very well lit. But then there's like a human being like used as fuel. And so he was quite, um, he was quite aggressive with his persecution. And so the Christian church went through uh, a period of this. Uh, one story of a famous martyr, his name is Polycarp. And this is Polycarp and he is the Bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp is one of the first well-known Christian martyrs. Um, he has a mentor named Ignatius, who is who is also a martyr, and Ignatius kind of t- 
taught and mentored Polycarp. And uh, Ignatius basically told him, there's going to be a time when we are going to be persecuted. You get ready for this persecution. And it's at this time where Nero is kind of going through and taking out different Christian leaders um, that, uh, yeah, this martyrdom takes place. Now, the reason why I bring up Polycarp is because his story is so unique. Um, there are three different occasions where the government actually tries to capture Polycarp and burn him. And what takes place is he hears about it, and then he runs from one house to another house to another house. And three times this takes place, and what Polycarp can't figure out is, I've told nobody where I'm hiding. Nobody else has told anyone where I'm hiding. How are they finding me? And it's in the third time that uh, the Roman Empire comes to capture him that uh, Polycarp receives this dream and in the dream, he is in the middle of, um, he's tied up to a stake and there's fire around him. And he wakes up and he goes, there are some people that are just called to martyrdom. And so what he does is he decides, the next time they come chasing after me, I'm not going to run. And so sure enough, there was somebody who um, had betrayed Polycarp and the soldiers came once again and they came with um, all their weapons to gather this man. And at the time he was 86 years old. So you can imagine there's like a group of soldier, trained soldiers with their weapons and here they come bashing through the door and here's an 86 year old man um, who's just kind of, you know, he, he's quite helpless. And so Polycarp basically makes a statement there are some people that God calls to be martyrs, and I believe I believe this is my calling in life. And so he stops running. The Romans uh, soldiers grab him, and they bring him forth before the court. And uh, it's at the court where the Roman officials begin to question him and tell him to uh, deny his faith. And his response to the to the Roman uh, authorities is, "The fire that you are going to put me through is only temporary. Is only temporary." And then he finishes his statement by saying, uh, the fire that, uh, there is an eternal fire that I'm more concerned about. But um, anyway, there are some things that you accept <laughs> from people and there are other things where you're like, mm, I don't know about that idea. But anyway, so this is Polycarp's uh, response and it's it's just an incredible testimony of of, uh, of faith and uh, it's a story of the of persecution that takes place. Now, what I want to do at this time is uh, go back to... Um, the early church and how they are first persecuted by the Jews. And I'll share with you how that transition takes place. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And Jesus has just spent 40 days with his disciples. He's instructed them about um, himself and the truths from scripture and he's kind of encouraging them and just as he's about to leave he gives them this command in acts chapter 1 verse 8 it says or jesus says but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth and so jesus gives a very specific command the gospel that i'm preaching to you it's not just for jerusalem it's not for you to um Gain disciples here to get comfortable and just to stay here. Take this message. First, go to all of Judea, then go to Samaria, then to the rest of the world. And as we kind of went through those slides beforehand, uh, where the church grows, all that growth is taking place in Jerusalem. And what you see is uh, thousands and, and 
there are people that estimate that there are about 25,000 um, converts to, to Christianity at that time. And for that kind of a population, uh, people estimate that there are maybe um, 45 to 50,000 people total in Jerusalem. And so when you have 25 to 30,000 converts, that's like 50% of the whole city is now Christian, which is significant. Um, a fun fact, I don't know if you've heard this before, but um, how many of you have been to Jamaica? Anybody? All right. If you ever go to visit Jamaica, 50% of Jamaica is Seventh-day Adventist. I don't know if you knew that. It is the highest percentage of Adventists in one community. On the whole island of Jamaica, 50% are Adventists. The high, uh, I think he's called the Prime Minister of Jamaica, is Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and he came to Andrews University and gave a presentation for graduation one time. And, you know, he's like a well-known world leader and everyone was kind of like, wow, like, you know, the leader of Jamaica is Adventist. Anyway, so, um, here in Jerusalem, <laughs> hey, Jerusalem, Jamaica, sorry. Okay. So in Jerusalem, you have this huge concentration of Christians and, and God wants the Christians to go and, sh- and spread the gospel and basically, you don't see that happening. And so what takes place if you go to Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first four verses. There's this man named Saul who is incredibly talented, incredibly smart, and he is just absolutely zealous for the truth that he believes in. And in verse 1 it says, And Saul approved of his execution, which is Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so what takes place is persecution starts in the New Testament church, and then the Christians go everywhere preaching the word. And so there are two observations that I make here. One is that persecution is kind of used as an impetus for the spreading of the gospel to Samaria and then to the rest of the world. Um, my second thought is, if persecution did not take place, would the Christians still have gone to spread the gospel? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure if persecution is the only way that God can get us to go witness to everybody. I, I hope not. But um, anyway, this is what is this is what happens. So persecution takes place. Now, a lot of times when we talk about the Jews hating the Christians, we almost kind of paint it in a negative light. Oh, those Jews that are so mean to the Christians. And I think it's important to uh, understand what's going on from the perspective of the Jews. And historically, um, the forefathers of Judaism are constantly worshiping other idols. They're constantly worshiping other gods. And the result of their disobedience is God basically bringing judgment upon Israel. And so they go into exile several times because they are not faithful to God. And so what happens is, initially, the Jews don't see the Christians as separate people. They see the Christians as part of their own religious group. They just see them as Jews that believe in this false teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And so when they meet another Jew and that, that other Jew says, Hey, listen, there's a man named Jesus. He's the Son of God. He died and rose again for our sins. The Jews kind of look at that and they're like, This is some kind of heretical teaching. Like, this is heresy. And if you've been in the church long enough, you will come across people who believe in things that you don't believe in. And in your mind, you think, oh, this is a concern, right? That's exactly what's going on for the Jews in Jerusalem. 
over half of them are becoming Christian and there is this heresy that's taking place. And so for the zeal and for the love of their um, nation, for the love of their God, they're kind of standing firm and saying, listen, stop teaching this wrong teaching. You have to believe in the truth. And there's almost a sense of fear that's developing in the Jews. And that fear turns into persecution. And so um, what you see happening is uh, the Jewish leaders kind of yeah, they, they get frustrated. And uh, we just read here in chapter 8, but Saul begins to throw people in prison. Um, I didn't write this here, but if you look at Acts chapter 7, it's the stoning of a man named Stephen. And he is this uh, powerful deacon who goes and he's preaching preaching the gospel. And the Jewish leaders kind of, they look at what he's doing and they think, this man is dangerous. And they decide to basically um, make Stephen uh, a martyr. And what happens next in Acts chapter 9 is that um, Saul, who was once trying to persecute the Christians, God picks Saul and he thinks, I want you to be a disciple of me. And basically, Paul or Saul has this conversion experience, becomes a Christian, and his name is changed to Paul. And upon hearing this, um, Paul's previous employers kind of feel threatened. These are the Jewish leaders, and they decide we need to kill Paul and this persecution continues on. Acts chapter 12, you see this transition from the Jews persecuting the uh, the Christians to now the Roman authorities persecuting Christ, uh, the Christians. And so it's here where I want to go there. If we can go to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And we're just going to skim through this chapter together. Acts chapter 12. Here's what the scripture says. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some of, uh, on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the, the days of the unleavened bread. And so here, Herod is going around and he's wiping out the leaders of the church. He kills James, the brother of John, and this is going to get confusing because there's going to be another James that steps into the story. And the two different James are one, James is the brother of John. The other James is the brother of Jesus. Okay, So James, number one, is the brother of John. James, number two, is the brother of Jesus. Way too many J names. But anyway, so James dies from the sword, and Herod sees that the people, that the Jews love this. And so he arrests Peter, and he plans, I'm going to kill Peter next. Now, notice what happens. Verse 5, it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And it's at this time that deep persecution is taking place. The Christians realize their leaders are being imprisoned, and this inspires them to pray. And there's nothing like difficulty, like persecution, that gets us to depend upon God. It's almost like the Christians have nothing else to rely on, and they're just hoping, God, please do something for us. And when they realize they can do nothing, that's when they pray. And you see earnest prayer being given for Peter. The story goes on that Peter is locked in the middle of this prison, and there are like there are two sections of gates with soldiers, uh, a pair of soldiers at each gate. And then when you get into the prison, Peter is uh, in chains on with soldiers on either side of him. So it's six soldiers, two gates to guard one man who is a Christian. And I'm pretty sure Peter didn't have um, a reputation for like 
being really good at hand-to-hand combat, they just really don't want this guy to be let free. And so you have all this, um, you have all these people that are stuck to him, um, to guard him. Now, the Bible says that as the church is praying for Peter, notice what happens in verse, uh, seven. It says, an angel, and I'm just gonna, I'll narrate the story if you want to skim from verses seven and go until, uh, verse, uh, 12. So basically, the Bible says that as uh, the church is praying for Peter, it says that Peter is sleeping soundly uh, between two soldiers. And there's a bit of irony in this story. And the first bit of irony is that the church is so worried about Peter. It's the middle of the night and everybody is praying for him. I once tried to pray all night. I made it to about 12 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided I'm too tired. I'm going to go to sleep. And here is the Christian church. They are so worried for their leader. They're praying all night. I, I can honestly say I've never had this experience before. They're so worried that they pray all night. And here's the irony. Their leader is in prison sleeping soundly. <laughs> and um, the angel goes and appears to Peter, and Peter's sleeping soundly, and it says that the angel strikes him on his side. I don't know what the significance of that is. Uh, maybe the angel was thinking, you need to experience some of what Jesus experienced, like whack you on the side or side, you know, I don't know. But the angel whacks Peter on the side, he wakes him up, and he says, gather your clothes together, put your sandals on, and it's at that moment that the chains that are binding Peter just by themselves they fall off of his arms and his feet and he walks out of the prison and the and the text says if you're reading along as peter walks up to the door it opens by itself and there's this incredible miracle that takes place and i just think it's so cool how the angel doesn't himself break open the gates i mean you think of the story of samson he just rips the gates out but this just opens by itself and then peter walks out and there's this incredible story and so the prayers of the church are heard and Peter is free. Now, here's where the story gets interesting for me. For me, the interesting thing isn't so much that God freed Peter. The interesting thing to me is how the church responds to Peter's freeing. And if you look at verse 12, it introduces this girl named Rhoda. And from 13 onward, it says, And when Peter knocked on the door... Of a certain house, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and for joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So here's Peter, who has just escaped prison. He knocks on the door of a church member's house, hoping to go in to to be uh, safe and secure. And the servant girl who hears the door knocking gets so excited, she runs in without opening the door. And she goes to the church members who are praying, and she says, Peter is freed. Peter is freed. And then the text says that the church members don't believe her. They go, nah, that's not Peter. That's not Peter. Now, here's a second bit of irony in the story. The second bit of irony is that the church members are praying all night long that God would free Peter. And when it actually happens, they don't believe that it has happened. When it actually happens, they don't believe that it has happened. This story is just filled with irony. Now, there's a lesson to be found in this story, I believe. And I kind of, I picture Peter to be kind of like God. And 
just like the church members are praying that God would do something, um, Peter is wanting to step inside of the door and tell them, hey, God has done something. And there's this verse that comes to mind. If you go to uh, Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, there's a picture um, that's given of Jesus that is very similar to what Peter is going through. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, 20, excuse me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And here's what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And so here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, there's a picture of Jesus knocking at the door of our hearts, asking, can I come in and would you share a meal with me? Here's Peter. He's knocking on the door. Hey, I, I am here. Can I come in? And the girl gets so excited that she just runs in and tells people, hey, he's out there. But she hasn't opened the door. And I wonder if the same experience that the Christians had with prayer in Acts chapter uh, 12 is something similar that we go through as Christians today. And what I mean by this is, how many times have you prayed fervently for something, day after day after day, praying for something, but you're not sure if God is actually going to hear it? And so you're praying diligently, but not expecting anything. Um, there was a period of time where I um, I was praying for uh, somebody that's very close to me. God, I'm praying that you're going to do something great in this person's life. I care about them. Uh, I want to see them um, grow in their knowledge of you. I want to see them uh, know what it's like to have a relationship with you. And so I would pray this um, day after day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And um, there came a point in time in my life where I kind of thought, you know, I need to be diligent in how I pray for this loved one. And at the same time, there came a point in time where I actually didn't think God was going to do anything. And so I was just praying because I felt, well, I should pray. But I didn't actually think God would do anything. And here in this story, there's a challenge to us as Christians, I believe, because it calls us to a congruency between what we believe and what we do and the other way around, what we do and what we believe. It's one thing to actually pray. It's another thing to believe that God is going to do something. And I think here the fault is with Rhoda in the story, in that if she would have simply opened the door and let Peter walk in, the Christians wouldn't have doubted anything because they would have seen Peter, right? And if also the fault is with the church members in that if they just believed God is going to hear us and God is going to do something, he may not answer the way that we want him to, but we know he's going to do something. Then if Rhoda said, hey, Peter's out there, they would have said, what are you doing? Open the door. Like He's standing out there. And so there's kind of this interesting story. And I, I kind of wonder if in our own lives, um, what would happen to those that don't believe that God is real if we would but open the door, let Jesus come in, and spend time with him. Uh, here in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I'm standing at the door knocking. I want to share a meal with you. Spend time with me, and you will know that I exist. You, well, I guess if you're, um, if you have a psychological problem, then you can have a meal with somebody that doesn't exist. But for everybody else, if you have a meal with somebody, you know they exist. 
And when you see what that relationship does to you in your own life, people around you will definitely come to the knowledge there's something different about you. What has taken place? You know, I like how in the story there are two Christian leaders with two very different, um, two very different endings. If you look at Acts chapter 12, going back to Acts chapter 12, I talked about that first James. He's the brother of John, um, one of the most significant um, apostles. And if you look there at the beginning, it says that he's killed with the sword. And I imagine that the church prayed for James quite diligently. I believe they had a burden for him. I believe God loved James incredibly. And what happens is you see one leader murdered. And then when Peter gets thrown into prison, you almost see the church getting jaded by the fact that, oh, he's lost. Herod already has him. Well, let's pray anyway, because it's kind of the right thing to do. And what happens is God answers prayers completely different. And I almost wonder if he spared the life of Peter to teach the church members, hey, listen, I may not always do what you want, but I am very real in your life, and I want you to expect that I am here. You know, there's a uh, testimony of, um, in Sri Lanka, there was uh, massive amounts of persecution that was taking place um, against the Christians there. And uh, one of the church leaders responded, you know, from the experience of prayer, there were five different responses. And I think these are very applicable to us as well. Um, what he found is when people prayed, um, when people prayed and asked God to work in their lives, uh, one response is that God would hear and there would be miraculous deliverance. In other words, they would say, God, my house is being broken into. Please save us. And that household would be spared. There was another experience where um, certain Christians would pray and through the trial, there would be this radiance of the Holy Spirit and, it, and people going through great difficulty, um, they would go through that difficulty yet still remain faithful to God and... Um, in their difficulty, there was like this tremendous witness that, look, this didn't turn out the way that I wanted to, but I still believe that God is faithful. Here's the third response to uh, prayer in Sri Lanka. The third response is that some people were shattered by the problems they faced, and they turned their backs on God. God, you didn't answer the, you didn't answer the way that I wanted you to, so you must not be real and forget you. The fourth response was this compromise, compromise of faith to avoid pain. And so the persecution would come and they would say, I'm not Christian, I'm not Christian, I renounce my faith. And then the persecution would be avoided. But then basically they weren't being true to themselves or to God. The fifth response, there would be people who did not care about God at all. And in that persecution, not only were the Christians affected, the non-Christians were affected as well. And people would respond, in losing Every earthly thing that I hold as um, something that gives me status in society, things that I rely on to give me security, I have lost my money, I have lost my status in society, and I just I don't have anything anymore, and it would cause them to turn to God. And it was very interesting how the different circumstances caused people to pray, and basically a different response was given. And I wonder if in this room, if we would categorize ourselves in one of these, uh, in one of these categories. But the point of this story is, regardless of how God responds to us in prayer, he's asking us to trust him. Sometimes we pray and we expect, in my prayer to God, he knows more clearly what I want. And the purpose of prayer is actually the other way around. It's 
in prayer, we begin to realize what God wants. And that's the purpose of prayer, to give us strength and motivation to trust in what God is doing and to move forward and basically, uh, I guess we would call it worshiping God or giving obedience to God. And so that is really the purpose of prayer. I want to end by uh, sharing this um, quote with you. It's found in this book called Education. It's uh, in page 260 and 261. It says here, Many even in their seasons of devotion fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of His Spirit. Receiving this, they will be quickened by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in his presence, but personal contact with Christ to sit down in the companionship with him. This is our need. Happy will it be for the children of our homes and the students of our schools when parents and teachers shall learn in their own lives the precious experience pictured in these words from the Song of Psalms. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. You know, in the midst of persecution, in the experience of prayer, when we are able to receive from God the power that he desires to give us, whether it's deliverance, whether it's trial, or whether whatever it may be, if we would but spend that time and allow God to minister to our hearts and for us to be able to hear what God wants us to do, incredible things would happen. I believe if Rhoda just opened the door and Peter walked in, they would have believed. And I wonder if around us, when people are skeptical, is God really real? Or how do I know that God is going to work in my life? When they see our lives, that they would then believe because we've opened the door and allowed Jesus to walk in. Over the next 40 days, um, as, a, as a church, uh, we're organizing something called a 40-day fast. And it's not a fast from food, it's a fast from media. And it's to cultivate the experience of us taking time out of what we would normally do, opening the door, letting Jesus walk in, and spending quality time with him and spending quality time with one another. Uh, we tried this at Andrews University one, uh, actually several years, and uh, word got around that we were doing it, and people thought that we were doing like a 40-day fast from food. And so we got like concerned calls from parents, hey, are you guys not letting our kids eat? <laughs> like, no, 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 it's not, it's not like that at all. But um, what we're doing is, and I'll just read this, it's uh, 40 days of fasting from media, replacing your normal media intake with spiritual activities. And uh, one might say, well, if I'm going to abstain from certain types of media, what kind of media am I going to abstain from? And uh, in the past, we've labeled specific things, and we found uh, it's better just to give a principle and let your conscience speak to yourself. Um, 
let the Holy Spirit speak to you, uh, and and you make decisions uh, based on what you uh, what you and God um, conclude. And so we used uh, the text in Philippians four verse eight. Um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. And so it's just a time where we are, um, yeah, feeding, feeding our minds, feeding our hearts, uh, with spiritual things. And so we've picked a book, um, you can find it on amazon.com.au uh, if any of you have a Kindle app and, um, it's a free app on the Google store or, uh, the iTunes store. Uh, if you've got an iPad, an iPhone, or any other smartphone that goes off of an Android platform, um, you can download Kindle, and this book is called uh, Conquering the Dragon Within by a man named Marvin Moore. Uh, the, it costs around $10.42, uh, which is which is not too bad. You can buy a hard uh, hardcover copy if you want from Kurong. It's $26. Um, in America, this is like a $7 book. Like, I cannot believe it's $26 here. Uh, but, um, so yeah, it's called Conquer the Dragon Within. Now, that name doesn't sound like it's like this spiritual, Jesus-filled book. <laughs> but um, I've read a good portion of this book, and it's incredibly Jesus-filled. Uh, it's written by a god... Uh, god... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's inspired by God. It's written by this guy um, who came from um, like a background that was like with the occult, and they're like supernatural things that happened in his life. And normally, I'm not into sensational things, but when he wrote this book, it was just it's just very incredibly spiritual and um, Jesus centered. I, I love this book. Um, and and uh, uh, an extra plug in uh, just to. Um, Sell it more. <laughs> Jin Ha, when she was younger, uh, read the first chapter of this book. And in that first chapter, this is when she first accepted Jesus into her life. And so I think she was around eight or nine years old. She read the first chapter of this book and she was like, I believe in Jesus. And she was like running around the house, like shouting, Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has forgiven me. And anyway, um, but she only read the first chapter. So Jinnah and I are going to read this book together. <laughs> so um, anyway, this is the book that we're going to go through. And um, what we're encouraging is if you would like to partake of this 40-day media fast with us, we're encouraging you to get a copy of this book. And if you are... Um, if you're in a relationship, to read this book with your significant other and in the evenings, just read, and you can read really any time that you want, but I've just, to make a specific application here, um, reading it in the evening, read it with your significant other, and then pray over what you've read together. Um, what we're going to do is, uh, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. If you want to sign up for the 40-Day Media Fast, we're going to email you designated chapters each week, and... Um, yeah. For those of you who are not in a relationship, what we'll do, and if you sign up, we'll just, we'll pair you with somebody, and that way you can have somebody that you can dialogue with, like you can read through uh, the book, and then you can talk to your um, prayer partner, or your prayer buddy about it. And so each day we're encouraging you to read, to pray, and to spend time in the Word and, and with one another. We're also, uh, on the weekends, Saturday afternoons at 2.30 p.m., we're going to gather together here at the church, and we're going to spend um, a thoughtful moment praying together and uh, just asking God to give us wisdom as to how we can open the door um, 
more regularly in our lives and it, what exactly it means for us individually uh, to open that door and say, God, uh, I normally open the door to other things and for the next 40 days, we're going to open the door to you and let you come in and uh, minister to us and us to you. And so um, this is what we're going to try to do for the next 40 days. So what I've done is I've put a sign-up sheet in the back. Um, there are Three things that it asks from you. One is a signature, and basically you're saying, God, I commit that for 40 days I am going to do this. Um, and there's just a extra level of accountability, I guess. Uh, secondly, it's going to ask for your name, and then thirdly, it'll ask for your email address. And then for those of you who are interested, we're going to, um, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, send emails out to you. The email has another uh, purpose for it, um, not just... Uh, sharing with you what the next reading is going to be, but we found that in dialoguing about what we read, uh, it's very beneficial. And so f- only for those of you who want to be involved, we're just going to start um, having like circulating emails and using it kind of like a blog where everybody comments on each other. So one person will share a thought, and then if someone's like, oh yeah, that was good, I thought this too, and then we can kind of just benefit from each other. And so that's the idea. Um, so what I'd like you to do is just as the song of response plays, um, and after I pray in the evening, or as I pray to close our, our uh, afternoon session, I invite you to go and, um, yeah, to sign up if you feel moved by the Spirit. May God bless you.